Grace, peace, and mercy be upon you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, descend on us today. Give us an extra measure of your power and help us to hear the message today and to take it in and consider what your servant Mark has to say to us through the witness of Jesus and the people that he ministered to in Galilee. In your name we pray, amen. Well, friends, I don't know if you heard, but last week, Elmo from Sesame Street got more than he expected when he checked in with people on his Twitter account and asked them how they were doing. The furry, red-haired Muppet apparently wasn't expecting to hear how people are really doing. He's just like any of us who expect people to say, fine, Elmo, how are you? Now, you're probably thinking I'm talking about young children who write letters to Elmo in crayon and and draw for him nice pictures of their families. But here's the thing. Children don't write letters anymore, and Elmo is 40-something years old now. His largest fan base are adults with their own children now, and they're all on social media, including Elmo. And it's now pretty clear to him that his millions of followers are not doing okay. Some of the responses the fun-loving, innocent creature had to face were, the world is on fire, Elmo. I'm at my lowest. Thanks for asking. And Elmo, I'm at my blanking limit. Poor little guy. He was just asking. Now, this all sounds humorous, although I'm not hearing a peep from any of you. Are you awake out there? But think about the people laying their real fears on the, on the feet of a beloved children's character. There's got to be something to examine there. But the story goes on. After a few days, people started tweeting back to Elmo, thanking him for listening and being there for them. People started talking about what it means to feel safe and understood in a time when things feel so dangerous and confusing. Catherine Tarleton, a therapist in South Carolina, says, trusted characters like Elmo create an environment of safety in which difficult conversations feel a little easier. (laughs) Well, don't we wish people felt that way about the church? About Jesus, too. I mean, talk about laying one's fears at the feet of a beloved children's character. (laughs) Jesus is much more than that. I have a question for you, though. Remember the, uh, for those of you who were alive then, remember the last half of the previous century. Vietnam War was going on, race riots in our cities, economic inflation, out-of-control pollution, the counterculture movement, nuclear war with the Soviets at any minute, and in the early 70s, a paranoid, corrupt president, not to mention disco dancing. Does anyone remember people talking about a time when when it means to feel safe and understood when things are so out of control and dangerous? It doesn't seem like it to me, although maybe it depended on who you were or what color your skin was 
or where you were living. Today, though, the climate of doom overshadows everyone, no matter the race, economic, or social level. David Brooks, author and teacher at Yale University, says something changed in America around the time of our bicentennial. People's minds changed from a communal type of mindset to a more individualistic one. But after a couple of decades of individualism, mindsets are swinging back to a peculiar kind of communal one, one with some big problems. There's a communal sense of oppression for, much, for a much wider group than people than ever before. In fact, it seems almost everyone or every group feels held back or held down in some way by some other group or type of people. There's a communal sense that everything in society is broken. Systems are rigged and institutions are inherently rotten. Injustice prevails and the environment is collapsing. People are finding collective meaning in resisting these ills in distinct groups, depending on where your mindset falls. And these groups are not necessarily friendly communities. They're angry ones. People today feel bonded to others in their groups, not because they're cooperating with one another, but because they're indignant about the same things. Pessimism has become a badge of membership showing that you're on the good side. Because if you're optimistic or positive about the current state of the world, you're obviously out of touch or in denial or refuse to believe the truth. Did you know that some of the youth of this church, people I nurtured in the faith for years and went on trips with and gave piggyback rides when they were in the school here, now see me as a cog in a corrupt system that hates people and holds them down? Did you know that? It's true. And yet, with all these oppressions and fundamentally illegitimate systems, we have more diverse people in government and positions of power than ever before. More diverse people making a living in this country. People who are ridiculed or marginalized because of who they are have more freedom and acceptance today than anyone could have ever dreamed of in the last century. The people of Los Angeles breathe cleaner air than I ever did when I lived there. And yet, some will tell you the nation is illegitimate. We, the church, strive to bring the good news of Jesus into this environment. But how did we get here? Well, some seem to think this collective negativism feeds a desire for people to feel smarter than others. In other words, when you have knowledge of how bad things really are, while other people blindly go about their day in ignorance, you have the truth as to how systems are rigged and inherently evil, while the masses are just too naive to see. It adds meaning to some people's lives and maybe even a sense of control. I don't know, maybe that's true or not, but what I know, what we know, is we have the truth. We know what's really going on, because we see him right here in our reading from Mark. We see this man who, according to today's opinion, is responsible for so many oppressions and injustices in the world, cast out demons and heal people. In fact, if you notice, it says in verse 32, all who were sick 
or oppressed by demons. This is an interesting translation in our English Standard Bible. When the original word Mark uses is possessed, in the Greek it reads more like all those being demon-possessed. Now, why did the English translators use oppressed when Mark uses possessed? I'll tell you. Like any language, there's a web of connections to different words, and the short of it is, when you're possessed by a demon, or demons, this is in the Greek anyways, you're gripped by them. You're in their grip, and you cannot exercise your own will. Like those who have power over you like kings and princes, their power has you in their grip, making it difficult or even impossible for you to exercise your own will. Thereby, you're held back. You're held down from doing what you want. Oppressed. It's not a bad translation, actually. Jesus freed the ones oppressed by Satan when he encountered them at the shores of the lake in Galilee. And he probably did the same wherever he went, whether it was up the coast towards Lebanon or in Jerusalem or the hill country. John says he did so many things that all the books in the world couldn't contain it all. But here in Mark, we have an instance where he sets the stage for what Jesus will do for everyone who is oppressed by Satan, sin, and its effects for all time, even now. Jesus is more than someone who is something. He's someone who does things. If there are so many people in our country today who believe so many people are oppressed by this thing and those groups and such, isn't it reasonable to say if they followed Jesus on his mission to seek and save lost, oppressed people, they would indeed be free? We have our work cut out for us then as his disciples. Here at St. Paul, we're embarking on a mission to bring 50 young people and their families to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him by the 150th anniversary. It's something to come together around and shoot for as the Holy Spirit guides us. We want young people in our community to hear about Jesus freeing demon-oppressed people, and we want to help them not feel or believe that life is rigged against them. And powers and authorities are holding them back and holding them down and all that. I've already been over. We want this for all people. It's a daunting task, to be sure. And it's going to require a lot of prayer. Look, if, any of you, if it was any of you who tweeted Elmo last week and unloaded your fears and anxieties on him, or even if you didn't, but you're feeling and thinking the way the pendulum has swung you know, to this mass collective doom, I would imagine me telling you, don't feel or think that way because you have Jesus isn't going to be the instant cure. I can give you assurance and encouragement based on the word of God that the sky is not falling. It's Jesus who will bring an end to things, not us. I can even validate your anxiety through the word by showing you the world does have its endless problems and oppressions going back to the beginning when the world fell into sin. 
I can't help, though, but go back to this text from Mark with Jesus in that low, dark place called Galilee. Jesus literally descended to the lowest place on earth to heal and free people oppressed by the forces of evil. These people didn't perceive they were oppressed or felt that way. They were for real. They were being held down by God's enemy who has power and authority on earth to do so. But Jesus has ultimate power and authority over the enemy. And if he can do what he did for these people at that lake, what more can he do? What more has he not already done for you and me, poor sinners, oppressed by all kinds of afflictions, perceived and real? Jesus bore the oppression of all the world's sin on his shoulders. He took your sin upon himself, died with it, and descended to a place much lower than Galilee, where he declared victory to those oppressed by the devil and will never go free. He rose from death and victory with you in mind. And in your baptism, you died and rose with him and are cleansed and free from sin's eternal grip so that you will not join those permanently captive in their hell. Look, on the very first day that Jesus began his ministry, a Sabbath day, no less, a day of rest ordained by the Father, the Son is a busy man. But he's not too busy for us. He knows and cares for you and each one of us. He commands us to lay all our fears and needs at his feet, where he stands to embrace us as his dear children and help us. So we ask him now, Lord, teach us to turn to you in every need, then give us grateful hearts so that after receiving your kindness and healing from oppression and every affliction, we thank and serve you. Amen.